This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, our f- next speaker uh, is going to talk about complementary and integrative therapies uh, for autism. And this is Dr. Robert Hendren. Um, Dr. Hendren has been a speaker at the conference in the past and always uh, does a great job. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral science, the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and co-director of the UCSF Dyslexia and director of program of research on neurodevelopmental translational outcomes research program called PRONTO. Uh, He is currently applying a, a targeted outcomes research approach and collaborative projects with the Oak Hill School for Youth with Severe Autism and Neurodevelopmental Spectrum Disorders in San Anselmo, California, and at the Charles Armstrong School for Youth with Dyslexia in Belmont, California. And we're very happy to have him here with us today. Dr. Hendren. Thank you. Thanks. It's, uh, you know, the highest compliment you can get is to be invited back. And I think this is my third or fourth time, and it's a great conference to be a part of. I think I first came here many, many years ago when I was at the Mind Institute, and now at UCSF, and it's been nice to follow the progress of this as we go along. I, um, I'm going to go follow the... Uh, the, the style of Dr. Schur and Dr. Leventhal, which is to go fairly quickly, you have the slides in your books. And for some of the things that um, have a lot of material, you could look at that in more detail so that we'll cover a fair amount of material as we go along. I um, do a number of studies. I'm a consultant for different places. Most of those are not things that we'll be talking about today, but just to be sure that I've disclosed everything, there it is. Um, We're going to talk a bit about the definitions of what is now increasingly called complementary and integrative medicine, but historically has been called CAM or complementary and alternative medicine. Talk about models for understanding this in terms of a potential mechanism of action. Review several promising biomedical or CAM treatments that seem relevant and the evidence for those and uh, when we might consider using them. Um, key points that I hope you'll come away with are that families commonly seek complementary and integrative medicine treatments. Whether you know about it or not, um, families often uh, will see two different practitioners, one traditional, one more integrative or complementary, and they may not tell each other for fear that there would be um, criticism of their doing that, and then you don't know fully what's happening with your patient. So it's important to be open, and we'll talk about some brief guidelines for doing that. Uh, We'll talk a bit about the rationale for some of these treatments and their potential benefits, and that's what really is most important for me. There's a number of different ideas that range from really wild to having some good rationale. While there may not be good evidence, if there's rationale, I think it's worth thinking about and considering and working with parents to think in those same ways. Uh, actually, four agents, because uh, I added one just last week, 
that have a rationale for use with neurodevelopmental disorders and at least one randomized control trial showing efficacy and safety include melatonin, omega-3s, folate, and folate was the one that was added uh, a couple weeks ago, and micronutrients. Those that seem to show some promise are things like NAC, methylcobalamin, and digestive enzymes, and we'll talk about all of those as we get towards the latter part of the talk today. Um, CAM has been defined as a group of diverse medical and healthcare systems, practices, and products that are not generally considered to be part of conventional medicine. I think that's gradually changing. We used to think that CAM was something that people would do when they didn't want to do what really worked or when they wanted to avoid things that might have side effects but there wasn't a good rationale for using them. But increasingly, there's starting to be a rationale, and people are starting to say, maybe there's ways that we can improve the body's resilience, that we can improve the epigenetic processes, and we'll talk about those as we go through it. And those ways that we can help the body be healthier, rather than trying to just stomp out the side of the associated symptom that we want to get rid of. 12% of children in the U.S. use complementary alternative medicines. Up to 74% of those recently diagnosed with autism use CAM. The reason, the main reason, are for concerns about safety, side effects, and that, those from prescribed medications. The um, wrong way. In talking with families about biomedical treatments, it's important to try to maintain an open mind and to say to people, tell me, what else are you considering using? What else do you do? Um, and without necessarily being critical, use that as an opportunity to instruct them in how to review the literature, how to think about mechanisms of action. Um, and when they still stay really pretty serious about saying they want to try this, try to have a way that you at least make sure they're seeing somebody that you think is reputable and that you could have some kind of a relationship with. A number of years ago, uh, a guy who is a neurologist trained at Hopkins who has a, has a daughter who had autism um, came to visit me at the Mind Institute and we talked and talked about what things has he tried, and we tried all the conventional things. We went through those. Then we started going through alternative things. And then I said, have you ever tried chelation? He said, yes. And I said, I don't believe that, Jonathan. How could you try chelation for your daughter? And he said to me in a way that I'll just never forget, he said, you know, Bob, my little girl Hannah has autism and nothing that I've used is working, so I'm, I'm going to try everything that might be able to work so that I'm sure that I didn't miss something. And I'm doing it in a thoughtful way and in a careful way, but I want to be sure I haven't missed anything. You might know Hannah by her name because she was the one child that first won in vaccine court for um, her father, uh, Jonathan, having taken her, uh, saying that, that she had 11 vaccines at one time and developed autism afterwards, and the vaccine court gave him a couple million dollars. Not that that makes a point, except the point is that this 
this young this man, Jonathan, was out to try everything that might help his daughter and wanted to be sure that that was being done. And so I think if we can understand that for parents and try and help them learn to think wisely, we can make a a difference in helping them make good decisions. I'm going to go through a whole series of all the things that are listed as complementary and integrative treatments. There's a website that is on ARI, the Autism Research Institute, and if you just Google that, ARI or Autism Research Institute, you'll find that they have a survey that parents have filled out with a whole series of things that they've tried. And they go through rating what things they thought helped, what things they thought didn't help, and it includes conventional medications, and it includes these uh, more complementary and alternative or integrative kinds of treatments. But you can see the medications go from things like diabetic agents, some that affect purine metabolism. There are things that uh, will affect fungus, viral, uh, antivirals, um, a variety of non-biologic treatments as well that can affect the way the body functions or works, CoQ10 that might be helpful for mitochondrial function, craniosacral therapy, curcumin, digestive enzymes, and we'll talk about some of these, but many of them have no evidence other than anecdotal evidence that parents filled out on this form saying that they thought that it made a difference for their child. And the list does go on with things that have not shown good evidence, like hyperbaric oxygen, some that have shown evidence in certain cases, like L-carnosine, um, methyl B12, NAC, naltrexone, um, a low oxalate diet, probiotics, uh, and going through a variety of vitamins. When I started, when I was first being interviewed to be the executive director at the Mind Institute, I was interviewed by four parents who had started the Mind Institute and raised, over the time we were together at the beginning, $100 million. They said, we want somebody to direct the institute that has an open mind. We want you to do good science, but leave no stone unturned about what might make a difference for people who have autism. And they encouraged me to go to some meetings that were then called Dan meetings and learn about these things that people were doing. The first one I went to was in Portland, and I left in the middle of it. I just thought, you know, there is no rationale for this. This doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, I don't see why I should even spend my time trying to learn about it. But I went away, and I started thinking, you know, these people are thinking out of the box. They're trying to find something that might have some rationale. They're not researchers. They didn't do good research. They didn't know how to study those things. But... They were trying, and they were looking for other ways of thinking, and we'll talk about some of the studies that resulted from that and where they've gone, and I think how keeping an open mind is a a worthy thing to do in this field and trying to figure out uh, how people might think about what's happening. Well, as Dr. Schur said he was going to tell you in a half an hour what uh, causes autism, I'd say here it is quickly uh, for you. The first is a genetic neurodevelopmental vulnerability, the kind of first hit. And then the way that that interacts with environmental stressors and the interaction between the two of those. So 
that's not so simple, uh, and all the ways that genes interact with each other and genes interact with the environment are then what leads to that process called autism. But it also suggests maybe there are things we could do for this second hit that it can improve the outcome of the interaction between the two. The third hit, though, comes when we say autism is a hopeless disorder and there's nothing we can do to make it better. And sure enough, if those people are put in institutions or are taken away from the opportunity to learn from others or other typically developing kids, they don't tend to do as well. And so that uh, restricted development is the other thing that seems to create the bigger problem. In thinking about this model, you could say if, if we were to think about autism as being a slice through the earth and the center of the earth is the DNA, that's the core of the earth, and the symptoms are what we see on the surface of the earth, you could say as we have historically, we first started out looking at symptoms, saying, oh, we can understand disorders by understanding symptoms and we created DSM. Then we said, hopefully, that we could understand disorders by understanding genes, and we'll find the DNA, and then we'll be able to fix the problem. That hasn't worked either, and increasingly what we're talking about is trying to understand the epigenetic process, the end of phenotype, what's happening in the center of the earth. As we say, how could we affect the metabolic process that comes from these genes and the way they express themselves, and then how they work their way up to the symptoms? I would tell you that when I first did this model, uh, I was at the Mind Institute, and I said, and, and I thought a nice way to Sally Rogers, I said, you know, Sally, the problem of what you're doing is you're working with behavioral treatments, and you're only working on the symptoms on the surface of the earth. Sally said in her inimitable way, you're wrong, Bob. She said, if I get these kids early enough and I can do the right treatments, I can re-sculpt their neurons. I can make their neurons different by what I'm doing. And she's shown that in her early start Denver model work and that the whole team has done looking at uh, uh, MRIs and EEGs and other measures that could say, yep, you are re-sculpting neurons in that way that we're doing these things. But as we think about what's happening in the center of the earth, I thought of it as somewhat like the terroir that you think of with a wine, where you say, you know, how much clay, how much sand, how much rain, how much sunshine. But I was visiting um, a close friend of our family in Alsace, and the people there were talking about their terroir and said, it's not only that, but it's also the souls of the people that are tilling the soil that make the terroir and make great sapage or great grapes. And I think that was an apt metaphor, I thought, for me in the way that kids grow brains. There's this this kind of soil, that what's happening here in the center of the earth, and are there ways that we can make that healthier and make it work better for kids? And I think some of the things that we're doing with some of these integrative treatments can make an effort for that to happen. So we might think of level four interventions being more behavioral, level one genetic, which we're doing a little bit more of, as Dr. Schur mentioned earlier. But what I'm going to spend my time talking about is this area in the, in the center, the, the metabolic processes, and how could we make those uh, healthier and more resilient. 
Those kinds of processes are things like immune abnormalities and inflammation or oxidative stress or disturbed methylation, mitochondrial function, free fatty acid metabolism, excitatory and inhibitory balances, hormonal effects in the microglia, which we're increasingly appreciating in a kind of gut-brain way, have an important role in the way that the brain functions and works. The problem in much of this research is that these are processes that are going on at various times. They may be in sequence. They may be active at one time. So when we try a treatment that we think is going to work well for immune function, but there isn't an immune activity going on because it's moved into another process further downstream, like, say, mitochondrial function, we may get a negative study unless we have a way of finding a biomarker that will make a difference in our making sure we've selected the right group to try this intervention. And I'll tell you about a study that we've just completed when I get towards the end, which is our effort to try to do that. But we need to have a way to know that this process is what's active now if we're trying to use an intervention that's going to target it. Otherwise, we're just shotgunning and maybe not fully making a difference. But this kind of thinking, this way of looking at these metabolic processes is a kind of paradigm shift. It's another way of understanding the disorder that's not so much based either on genes or symptoms or even brain structure and function up at the surface of the earth, but what's this metabolic process and how can we affect a change with it? There are people that have intestinal inflammation, digestive enzyme abnormalities, metabolic impairments, people with autism that show signs of oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, immune problems, and that range uh, in, have a whole variety of ranges that we might see improvements by a combination of nutritional recommendations, prescription medications, and addressing the underlying medica- medical conditions that we see. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about as we move ahead. First, though, I want to spend a little time applying this to saying, is there anything that we could do to help that process that we're talking about from going awry? If someone has a genetic vulnerability, is there a way that we could create the healthiest kind of environment so that those genes don't express themselves or don't start lining up and having this plant who might be growing towards the light over here going off rather than growing straight in a way that could make it healthier. And there are a number of websites and places that have started talking about this, including ARI, and that's where Maureen McDonald's recommendations are. We'll talk about what some of those people are saying, but you know, some people uh, are saying things that don't have very much evidence. And there's a growing body of people, though, trying to see what can be done looking at the, per- the prenatal history, the epigenetic information that's not contained in the DNA sequence, and how could we think about 
that first level out, which is the chromatin patterning and the uh, methylation, and how could we then go on to other places where we could make a difference. Some people even say this kind of thing gets carried on from generation to generation and might express itself even at some point later. If you recall the studies of smoking grandmothers who have grandchildren that show that same evidence or mouse models that can actually show seven generations of skipping that makes a difference before it finally expresses itself in that uh, small uh, embryo and then the fetus. There are things that we know affect risks, risk like older women who are deficient in iron have five times the a greater risk of having a baby with autism. Prenatal steroid perturbations, even in a skipped generation, may increase risk. Preterm birth, small for gestational age, C-section are all associated with increased risk, but it's not just those processes by themselves is what might have led to the reason for a C-section. Diabetes, uh, being overweight, autoimmunity, infection, and age all play a role. Higher maternal intakes of certain nutrients seem to especially folic acid and, to some extent, omega-3, vitamin D, antioxidants, iron, and breastfeeding are all associated with better outcomes. Those have been shown in isolation, but so far somebody hasn't done one large population-based study saying this could make a difference if we took high-risk moms. But there's one study that we'll talk about in a minute that took high-risk moms gave them high doses of vitamin D, and the incidence of those who took the vitamin D compared to those who didn't was far lower than in those that uh, were not taking that extra supplement. That's been shown for a few other things as well, and at least suggest maybe we could do things, especially in high-risk pregnancies, to say that autism could be prevented. A pediatrician, Liz Mumper, has a practice mostly filled with kids with autism. And she took uh, mothers, 290, uh, mothers of 294 patients that were wanting to have a second child. And she said, try these things. Um, make sure you're not exposing yourself to environmental toxicants. Breastfeeding for a long period of time, at least a year and a half. Think about your gut flora composition. Look at your nutritional status. She advised against acetaminophen use even before the recent studies and used antibiotics uh, uh, sparingly and tried to do what she could to support people with infections. She, um, out of these 294 patients that she'd followed from 2005 until 2013, none of those kids that were born came with autism, and yet the average rate is somewhere between 17 and 20 percent. So it's an anecdotal study. It wasn't published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it was someone's practice, and there's one other study that's somewhat similar, talking about using those kinds of strategies to make a difference. There's a group that's called Preconception to Infancy, P2I, and the website for that is at the bottom, that's now trying to operationalize this in a much larger way using step-by-step -step guidance used based on hard science that might increase the odds of delivering a full-term baby who won't suffer from chronic illnesses like those that are listed there 
and their goal is to have to do this with one million babies. There's been a new center that's developed at uh, uh, University of Georgia, headed by Jose Cudero. Jose was uh, at the CDC for quite a number of years and was a professor both at Emory and at the uh, University of Puerto Rico. And uh, it's just getting started, and if you want to read more about it and things you're doing, that's something to at least think that this is beginning to move into an area of seriousness that might be able to make a difference. I'm going to shift and talk just a little about some of the labs that might be used. Um, and Dr. Schur went through the ones that are the main ones. The things that are standards, like a metabolic panel, a variety of other things, are the standards. And I see I'm losing my time, so I'm going to go fast through these, and you can read them if you want. But the latter ones are ones that are somehow thought of when a person has a reason for that. Some of the others, and I guess I, I, sh I didn't show all of them, fortunately, so I will go faster. Um, there are a number of other tests that you'll find some doctors are doing that don't have good evidence. And we've spent a lot of time trying to find evidence for some of those tests that become fairly expensive. But... Um, Many of those doctors have a rationale and feel like there's a reason that they're doing it, but you'll sometimes see patients that have sheets after sheet after sheet of a number of tests that they say that are, have abnormal values and that one might do this to treat. It's not saying they're not um, having uh, good value, but they don't have strong evidence in ways that they work. I'm going to go through this last part of the talk talking about several uh, complementary and integrative medicine treatments that I think have some evidence for their working. Melatonin, there was a good review and meta-analysis of 35 studies, saying, and five of them were randomized controlled trials, showing that uh, sleep duration was increased and the sleep onset latency was decreased and the nighttime awakenings were unchanged. The adverse effects were minimal to none. And I use a fair amount of melatonin for sleep, usually between 3 and 9 milligrams. That makes a difference and doesn't seem to have harmful side effects, either short-term or long-term. Vitamin D became popular when people first started think as an etiology for autism, when people said, you know, Maybe some of these people that are developing autism are dark-skinned people that move into low-light climates, and there was a large number of people from Somalia that seemed to be developing autism when they moved to the Scandinavian countries. There have been also studies showing that if you live in a rainier environment, there might be a higher incidence of autism, perhaps because kids stay inside more. All kind of anecdotal evidence, but we did a small study showing that we could give uh, doses of vitamin D and it could uh, even at high doses that we had some trouble getting through the IRB but was were given safely and effectively and there have been uh, there have been two recent randomized controlled trials suggesting that vitamin D makes a difference in symptoms for kids with autism at doses usually between 2,000 international units and 5,000 international units uh, the study that I've mentioned is not up there, but it was uh, done of uh, pregnant moms at high risk taking uh, 
2,000 IUs at the beginning, 5,000 through the pregnancy, and 7,000 international units when they were breastfeeding, finding a much lower incidence of autism in those offspring. Uh, It was an open-label trial, however, and uh, there are reasons to say maybe that isn't fully working. The first study that we thought of doing um, when the parents gave me this challenge and I went to talk to these people was... um, I, I, they said, I said, what study do you think we should do that's a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial? They said, chelation. I said, no, I don't want to do chelation for our first study. That's just too controversial, and it's too complicated. They say you need to be on a case and gluten-free diet first. And then there's all these things that you're taking out, as Bennett pointed out, all these heavy metals, and so you have to supplement them with other heavy metals if you're going to do it right. So... I said, what's second? And they said, methyl B12. So we did a study at at the Mind Institute of of methyl B12. And I have to tell you, it was the second kid that we saw in that study that made me passionate about doing this kind of work. This little boy that was fogged, kind of looked like there was a veil over him. You didn't really get a response. He was in another world. And I think we all see a fair number of kids with autism, not all of them, but a fair number like that. And he came in, and he started on the methyl B12. And he came in after a month, and it was like he'd been awakened. He looked at me, and it was as though he just discovered me. And his parents said he's more engaged. He's seeming to, it's like this veil has been lifted. Now, his autism wasn't cured, but he seemed to do a fair amount better. We finished that study, and uh, our biomarker group that showed oxidative stress were the ones with the most impaired oxidative stress were the ones that showed the most improvement. Based on that, we got a grant from Autism Speaks, and we did a second study, which is down at the bottom, that has recently been published, that shows, uh, it's not impress anymore, uh, showing that the active did separate from placebo in a randomized control trial, and the oxidative stress biomarkers were the ones that uh, were the most predictive of whether these kids would respond or wouldn't. Antonio Hardin did a study of NAC for kids with autism, randomized control trial showing that active separated from placebo. Other groups have done similar studies with NAC looking at self-injurious behavior, OCD-type behaviors, all showing some benefit. We did a study of omega-3s, one that was a small study, another that was an Internet-based study, so we could enroll people on the Internet. We sent them placebo or omega-3s. While active didn't separate, there was a strong trend to omega-3s making a difference, and we were giving one gram a day. And there are several randomized control trials done in Europe that show benefits from omega-3s for autism. Jim Adams has done a number of studies of vitamin and mineral supplements, some of them randomized controlled trials, again showing that these high doses of micronutrients made a difference uh, in a number of of the scales that you can see on the last bullet, uh, suggesting benefits from uh, high-dose micronutrient supplement. He was using something that was somewhat like Empower, but it was not Empower, but it was that kind of high-dose micronutrient. Diet has been inconsistent. Uh, The studies of casein gluten-free diet, there was one early study suggesting benefit, but later ones, it's a hard study to design, have not shown clear benefit. 
looking at the microbiome. Uh, studies of mice have shown that uh, creating a mouse model of autism reversed the autism when given probiotics, and there have been several other studies looking at the value of probiotics. Pancreatic digestive enzymes, a company called Curemark, who we're doing a study for, um, and it's our second study with them of a multi-site study saying, I guess that this caused improvement because the FDA is encouraging them to go back and do a second study. So the FDA reviewed that data, uh, although it's not been published yet. Um, and they used as a biomarker in the first study, fecal chymotrypsin had to be low. The FDA said, how do you know fecal chymotrypsin is a marker? You need to go back and do the study for all kids. If anybody has an interest in pancreatic digestive enzymes, we do have a study ongoing uh, at uh, the Mind Institute. One is at the Mind Institute and one is here. There have been studies, as was mentioned earlier, of vasopressin. Those results haven't been produced or published yet either, except that the company, Roche Genentech, went to the FDA, and the FDA told them they wanted more data. So there's an ongoing study of vasopressin for um, autism that I guess the FDA thought it was worth going back and trying again, suggesting maybe that it made a difference. We just finished a study at the Oak Hill School of sulforaphane, which is a concentrated broccoli sprout extract that was developed for treating oxidative stress and cancer. Um, it seemed to have an effect on heat shock protein and a kind of uh, thoughtful uh, uh, physician thought about heat shock and kids with autism who tend to do better with fever and he thought maybe sulforaphane could make a difference for these kids. Did a randomized control trial and active separated from placebo. We did the study at the Oak Hill School, used metabolomics as a biomarker of outcome. The, the study showed eight out of seven kids got significantly better, but it was an open-label trial, and we're now just analyzing our metabolomic data. And again, oxytocin showing a difference. I'm near my last slide. So um, the, there are things that suggest mitochondrial function might make a difference, uh, giving CoQ10, no good studies showing that benefit. Medical marijuana, not good studies, but I have to say I have maybe 20 kids uh, that I've tried on uh, first medical marijuana, then THC and CBD together, or first separately and then together. I don't think it's a miracle drug. You maybe saw the article in the New York Times. There have been one in the Atlantic Monthly, several others. I think it makes a difference for some kids where I've tried absolutely everything, and it seems to work. I have one family where I'm sure it's the grandfather that's taking the medical marijuana, <laughs> and he says his kid's doing a lot, his grandkid's doing a lot better. Um, the, but, you know, I reviewed a grant a while ago that was looking at the endocannabinoid system say, and treating people with, uh, with cannabinoid, cannabidiol, and I thought that was the craziest idea I'd ever heard of, and now it's becoming something seriously talked about in terms of things that might make a difference. Looking at other things like GABA-A and vitamins and minerals, I would encourage you to think about doing everything that you can to help these kids. The medical workup that you heard about earlier, speech and OT, behavioral treating associated symptoms with pharmacology, but thinking about things like melatonin, omega-3, vitamin D3, 
probiotics and digestive enzymes that can make a difference. For those of you who've known me for a while, you'll know this slide because I show it at the end. It was, uh, we did an art contest at the Mind Institute and we selected uh, about 75 things that were shown. This is from a boy who actually lives in Marin and I continue to see even though he's a young man now. But his mom said that he would always he would show an uncomfortable situation, and this this piece is called the haircut. You can see how he's feeling about getting a haircut, and that bee is probably the buzz of a razor. But she said when he had an uncomfortable situation, he always showed a way out. And you can see the door on the side there that was his way out. I hope that by our shifting our thinking and thinking about ways to help the body be more resilient and work and function better, we might have kids help kids with autism find a way out of the sometimes challenging disorder that they're in. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.